So, Parker, good to see you again. We had a call yesterday, but you were, we left it with, um, we were talking about right livelihood and we're left with the uh, position of the teaching of the Buddha uh, that concerns the three things of gratification, danger, and escape. Um, the things that we don't quite realize until we do some investigation in it is, is that many of the things that we would do, do do, that if we saw someone else do it, or if we were asked about it on some sort of exam question, we would say that that would be unwholesome behavior. <laughs> when we are actually engaged in doing that, it's hard to see the danger because what we're actually experiencing, perhaps at a subconscious level, we don't even understand it. Uh, that we get gratification out of doing the things that we do. If we didn't get any gratification at all, those behaviors would dwindle away mm -hmm. completely. Now, it's also the case that there may not be gratification, but the promise of gratification, let's say intermittent gratification that one of the things about the intermittent gratification is it often drives us to keep trying and trying and trying in case we do get the gratification for it, okay? Mm -hmm. Trying and trying and trying is also dukkha that we don't see. Yeah. That is this worth the effort to get uh, the gratification? And there's uh, some very, very clear examples in, um, let us say, uh, animal psychology and testing and whatnot. And one of the things that uh, uh, that they were testing for, uh, this was actually kind of early research, where uh, they taught the monkey that if, um, if the light comes on and then they press the button, then a treat will pop down. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm not sure about the relationship about uh, the light that comes on or not. But basically what happens is, is that they can turn the light on and then the monkey presses the button. And, and uh, after he presses it many times and keeps getting the reward, this time he presses it, there's no reward. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that's not necessarily new information, or if it's new information, it's only a new piece of information on top of, on top of the big pile of information of success before. Before, every time he pushed the button, now, uh, uh, instead of like then, now he's not getting the same response as he did before. So he's likely to try it a second time. Maybe I didn't push it hard enough or whatever the thoughts that the monkeys have, but they'll try it again. All right, so with that um, point, what the psychologists have learned to do is, is that they can train the monkeys by giving them, okay, one, two, three in a row, and then they'll miss one. And then one, two, three, four in a row, and then they'll miss one. And then one, two in a row, and then they'll miss one. And then they start one, two, three, four, five, and then they'll miss one. And then they'll miss another, and then they'll miss another, 
and then they'll miss another. And what that does is the monkey starts pounding on that uh, hmm. uh, uh, button that he's taught, uh, been taught to push, and he will continue to do it even when there's no gratification. In fact, uh, he, he's not getting anything out of it. He knows he's not getting anything out of it, but he has the memory of in the past he was getting some benefit out of it, and so he keeps pressing the button. Okay, guess what? This is actually mimicking human behavior with the difference of um, that in, instead of a device that can be programmed and instead of a drop of food that comes out, we can see this in inner uh, actions between people. That the child does something and mom smiles and gives him a good reaction. He does it again and she smiles and giving a good reaction. He does it again and now it's getting boring for mom and she's not smiling anymore, which means now little Johnny's going to do it and do it and do it and do it and do it, and do it until he gets mom to give the reaction that he's looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is what we are looking at in the sense of the gratification. And that we can get gratification, or we think that there's some sort of gratification in doing some um, <laughs> some unusually ungratifying things. Sure. An example of that would be feeling morose, having a pity party. Oh, poor me! That people get great gratification out of that. Mm -hmm. They get comfort from it. Of taking, yeah, yeah, because right. the other opposite would be there's a whole lot of work to be done, right? Mm -hmm. um, or at least in their mind. So once we recognize that most of the things that humans do, we do either because we know that we're going to get the response that we want or that we hope that we're going to get the response. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, in Western culture, hope <laughs> is an attribute. Mm -hmm. Within the context of the Buddha Dhamma, hope is dukkha. Yeah, for sure. Why? Because hoping to get something means that you don't have it right now. You're in a state of want. You're in a state of deprivation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you hope, then that means that you're hoping to get something that you want. Yeah. And so that hope then becomes part of the gratification. If I can't get it, at least I can hope to get it and I can feel satisfied with the hope. That yeah, I'll get it someday. for sure. All right. So we have to understand then that this gratification system is very intricate, very highly built in, and it is a tremendous motivator to keep us going with our habits. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just like that monkey pressing that bar over and over and over again without getting any reward. In fact, uh, the filming of it shows very interesting things that the monkeys will go and they'll just tear into it and just bang, 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 bang for a long time. And then it'll get frustrated and they'll go over to the other side of the uh, uh, cage that they're in. Mm -hmm. And they'll keep looking back at that switch. They'll keep looking back. They'll keep looking at it again over and over. And then they'll go back again and they'll start banging on it. 
At this time, it doesn't even matter whether the light is on or not. Yeah, really, yeah. Okay, yeah. This, this banging then that the monkey is doing to get that retreat, that any intelligence would say that he's not going to get it. These, these guys are playing tricks on him. <laughs> yeah. And we begin to believe that there is something out there that's playing tricks on us. It gets us to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping for a new result. Mm -hmm. And we don't ever get it. This is, in fact, uh, it's attributed to uh, Einstein in some quarters, but there's um, uh, some evidence that it didn't come from him, but it's attributed to him that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a new result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. This is the whole system of the gratification that the Buddha is talking about that winds up being not so gratifying. It's just the hope for gratification, or even if it's the gratification we do get what we want, it was so expensive that it wasn't worth the effort. Sure, yeah. Okay, um, so uh, this is part of the reason why the investigation is so valuable, is to start looking at these repetitive things that we do over and over and over again, and start looking at it and start asking ourselves, what am I expecting when I'm the monkey that keeps pushing that button yeah. that no longer delivers? What am I doing? And in fact, um, there's also another statement that's very similar to that. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Mm -hmm. This is typical of meditation. This is, in fact, the whole story of meditation. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. As a, as a young student, in fact, uh, I was fairly new with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And um, we were talking about that, and I used that example. And he stopped, and he mused, and he chuckled, and he said, no. If at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's the wisdom. If you first don't succeed, or even if you never exceed, no matter how many, what's the first or the seconds, when you're not succeeding, stop doing it. And look at what you're doing instead. Certainly. And yeah, that's part of why this conversation interests me is I see there are those like just on like an average level, like with wanting to eat when I'm not hungry, but also um, like with work, I've kind of noticed that like if I am really looking at just this moment, um, there's no reason that I'd work, it would just be happy. So um, part of my interest in plotting the escape is it seems there's like a skillful way to do that um, rather than just st stopping doing it to make sure there's less of a thud. Um, I think <laughs> that was part of the thought. Right. Well, we can see that in this experiment with the monkeys, the psychologist set that up. Mm-hmm. But we can also see that society sets up children 
in the same way that we set them up for failure by giving them a little success at it. Yeah. And so then we begin to get the gratification, but the gratification that we uh, were getting is in the past. Mm-hmm. This is actually the same thing as um, what we call coming to a conclusion. All right. Coming to a conclusion means that we investigate something, we see how it is, and so we come to the conclusion that we know how it is. So the sure. monkey was coming to the conclusion that if you press the button, he gets a treat. Yeah. Right? And he kept that conclusion, even though the new evidence showed that when you press the button, you don't get a treat. Mm-hmm. Why is he clinging to the wrong information when new yeah, information this... is coming in? Okay. Sure. If monkeys do this, you can see humans do it too. We rely upon old information and the gratification that we got with the old information, and we're ignoring the reality of this moment. Mm-hmm. Where that old information, when we were kids, that might have been right at the time, because that's how we mm-hmm. did the, get that. But this is like the, is it noble right view of like just investigation instead of cling to a conclusion? Is that what you? Well, that's exactly uh, where we're going with this. That mm-hmm. when the Buddha is discussing the Eightfold Noble Paths, uh, a great deal of it has to do in the setup of right noble view. That right noble view is uh, uh, actually, uh, there are two kinds of views, right view and wrong view. And wrong view basically is saying that we can get away with anything, that I'm not responsible, that mm-hmm. I can go get what I want and be done with it uh, in the sense that uh, there really is no good or bad action. There is no comma. This is the worst wrong view. This is actually the uh, the view of mafia, of prisoners, of uh, criminals. But we have it all on a regular basis mm-hmm. in the sense of sneaking around, trying to get away with something. A really interesting one is the diet. Okay. okay. The diet is, is that if you don't see me eat it, I don't gain weight. (laughs) And so so the fat guy on the diet sneaks into the kitchen at night where nobody can see him and binges on food. Yeah. Right. So nobody can see me do it. Right. This is the whole idea of I can get away with it Mm -hmm. if I don't get caught. All right. So that's the wrong view. The uh, ordinary right view is basically just a response to uh, to wrong view in the sense of, no, you can't get away with it. It's our jobs, we're the authorities, and we're going to make sure okay. that you can't get away with it. Okay, now the child, when he's growing up, is on both sides of this fence. The child is the one who's trying to get away with it, and the parent, ego state of that child, is being programmed by the adults. No, you can't get away with it. And so what this does is kind of creates a conflict within the child. Yeah. Right. And so we want to know, can we get away with it or not and finish this question off? We don't like being in a state of confusion. Yeah. Okay. This is why it's so easy to come to a conclusion. We think we know something. 
And in fact, when we thought we know it, when we figured it out, when we did the investigation, it was right that time. But yeah, things I can, change. I noticed the, like, I recall, like, having that and, like, there's, like, an urge, like, I don't want to, like, there's an urge to just make the conclusion, right? Instead of, but there's also the urge of, like, wanting to reconfirm it because there's also the sense of this might not be right. Um, That's when the Buddha comes in, is that yeah. reconfirmation and reconfirmation and reconfirmation. This mm -hmm. is why it is, in fact, called the faculty of investigation. The word investigation is used as part of the definition of right view. In the sense that we keep investigating. We keep investigating and we keep investigating. And the better way of investigating is not like in the sense of a still camera, let us say a security camera that is just sitting there and it may either be videos or once a second it takes a photograph and once a second it takes a photograph. Okay. And uh, people generally hold world views like that in the sense of occasionally they'll go and revisit their worldview, take another photo of it. But basically, it's the same thing. All right. Now let's look at it from the perspective of a better noble view would be having a camera that was panning so that you can pan back and forth and get a much, much wider view of things. Mm hmm all right but uh that would actually be then the still camera would be wrong view an ordinary right view would be the panning camera who's trying to look to see what's going on but only from a narrow perspective or a viewpoint sure and that <laughs> viewpoint is the me or here am i and this is how i look at things from this perspective Mm -hmm. And now have a third kind of camera, and that camera is, say, on a drone. Mm -hmm. And now the drone can go and look at this thing, and then it can come over here and look at it from this angle, and it can come over here and look at it from this angle, and all around. And this is the kind of right view that's really noble right view. is taking many, many different viewpoints about things. For sure. To really investigate it. To not investigate it from a narrow perspective or a narrow point of view, but to investigate it from other people's points of view. Yeah, to avoid the confirmation bias, like maybe the security camera stays in a certain place. That's exactly right. In fact, the Buddha was was actually talking about that without using that concept. And in fact, the concept of confirmation bias is so new that it didn't even make it into the translations. But I would assume that there would be some places now we could go back and find a place where it would be a good fit to translate that particular Pali passage into confirmation bias. Because that's exactly what we're doing here, is that that, that camera that pans, it has a heavy, heavy bias. Yeah. Because of its location. Mm -hmm. For sure. You can only see so much. Yeah, <laughs> there's the security guard likes to look at certain places. And when um, maybe someone does pop up, he likes to look away. Mm -hmm. So this is what we mean by right uh, noble view is that everything is worthy of investigation. 
And so when we put that into um, the context, that means that sati, whenever we wake up, whenever we look, the first thing that that has to do with then is taking the right view of looking at what's going on. Mm -hmm. See, everything is brand new. Yeah, yeah. That everything actually is brand new. The only reason that people think that things get old is because they personally are attached to the past. Mm -hmm. And in fact, every situation is brand new. Now we can uh, we can see connections or we can see the way that things are headed, but that's not the uh, the same as basing it on, upon the past, that we have to keep looking at how things are in this present moment. The example that I would have with that, and this is well known, um, I, I learned about it when I was a teenager. When my dad would take me on, uh, well, he actually didn't, it was other people, but uh, because of my dad's connection with people that he knew in the town that we that we lived in or moved to, uh, that I had an opportunity to go hunting, and I learned a lot about people and things like that about going hunting. One of the things that I learned about is that everybody's watching every gun. Mm -hmm. And when I told this story to another student who said that, yeah, he's been to gun ranges, he's been to rifle ranges, shooting ranges, and things like that, and that's also the number one issue, is everybody's got their mind on where every gun is pointed. Now, in my case, uh, way back when, there was an old man, an old grandpa that had a uh, double barreled 12 gauge shotgun under his left arm with the barrel like this and the, uh, with a, a handle uh, or the stock like this with the barrel kind of pointed down. And he was walking around and swinging that gun pointing at this and that kneecap and everybody was dancing around. Okay, because they didn't want his old man pointing a shotgun at them. Why? Yeah. Well, this is a really important point, and that is, is that the way the direction that a gun is pointed means that there's danger in that direction. Mm -hmm. Okay. If that's the case, then that's a really brilliant way of learning the Dhamma. Is we wisdom is looking at the way that things are pointed. Yeah, looking at the way that things are headed, if things are pointed off in this wrong direction, then if if the trigger is pulled, that's what's going to have damage. Sure. Yeah. If if there are unwholesome thoughts or if you are seeking something that you don't have. Exactly so you're you're getting it right now. So uh, taking this physical analogy, you can also see that that's true in conversations. That you can have a conversation with somebody and you can see that this conversation is not <laughs> pointing in in a wholesome direction. Yeah, for sure. And so because of that, we can make some adjustments. This is mm -hmm. this is wisdom. This is why the word wisdom is actually used as part of the discussion of one's right view is to really check things out and see where things are headed like that. In, uh, and so there's a lot going on here in the sense of recognizing that if we keep doing something over and over again, expecting different results, then that's like looking at the gun keeps pointing in that direction. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that and that's dangerous. Okay. So um, this is how we begin to understand it from that that perspective. Um, and th this is actually a very simple thing. Once we get the hang of it, we could go so far as to just say, oh, well, all I have to do then is have happy thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now think about that. If we have unhappy thoughts, that's like swinging the shotgun back and forth, aiming at whatever we're talking about. Mm -hmm. This also fits in with something that the Buddha said. Um, he actually, it was a discussion to where the Brahmins had the idea that actions were really, really heavy. Deeds were the big deal. Kama was their hallmark. Mm. And that um, second in line was speech, that speech really wasn't all of that powerful, that mm. people can yell at each other and yell at each other all day, and then they can get over it. But if one picks up an axe, after that sure. argument, people are not going to get over it so easily. No. All right. So um, then you could say that that taking an action is very much like the Brahmin said, was like chiseling into stone. This act, you're chiseling right, is there it is, sure. it's done. Yeah. To, to where uh, speech is like writing in the sand. Mm -hmm. And so on the next tide, it's probably going to be gone. People forget things that are said, to where th deeds that are done can be long lasting. And then the last one is, is that a thought is kind of like writing in the air. As soon as the thought is finished, it's gone. Or sure. writing it in water, okay? And the Buddha says, no, that whole way of thinking is completely upside down. It's completely backwards. Yeah, for sure. If you think about that, the gun analogy, they're kind of saying, like, only if you shoot the gun, it's um, where... Um, the Buddhist teachings are saying more like pointing the gun is dangerous in general. And it's because there is a, always a possibility of you shooting it. And absolutely, absolutely. Um, recently, I heard a, just a bit of a piece of an interview uh, with uh, there's a, uh, a very famous uh, magic act uh, in Las Vegas called Pen and Teller. Mm -hmm. And uh, the name Teller is kind of funny because Teller never talks. He never tells anything. Yeah, I've watched but, some of their acts. But yeah. Penn is is uh, uh, very active, and he made that statement. He says about um, about free speech that until the criminal actually does something, our laws are set up to where you you can't t uh, uh, punish him because he says he's going to do it is only after he does it and then both what he did and that he said that he was going to do it now can be used against him in court but he can't just say that he's going to do it and this is the whole issue about gun rights and all of that kind of stuff are we going yeah. to start taking away the guns from people who uh, are talking about using a gun mm-hmm because the people who don't talk about using a gun are not going to be using a gun. Those people who are talking about using a gun are going to be the ones who most likely use it. 
that Peller, that uh, Penn was absolutely wrong about that. That we need to find ways of monitoring uh, speech in that way. If people are thinking it, then they're talking about it, and then they're doing it. That's the one, two, three punch in the sense that uh, if you don't think it, you're probably not going to say it. In fact, it's almost impossible to say something that you don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or when you do talk, what you say is going to be what you are thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if that's the case, then that means if we are thinking wholesome thoughts, then our speech will be wholesome and our acts will be wholesome. Yeah, for sure. And if our thoughts are unwholesome, then that's like waving a gun around and it might go off. <laughs> and so this is the then the point of wisdom that we have to start watching the kind of thoughts that we have because those thoughts then may be dangerous. Mm-hmm. We need to see how how these how these thoughts are headed, so that we can um, let us say uh, handle things in time, just in time, as opposed to late. Yeah. All right. We, we want to change that direction of that gun and perhaps even unload it before it goes off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way that we begin to think. This is why it's so important then for students to actively be engaged in changing their thought patterns. Yeah, I'd noticed that. It's I know people who like would agree with the advice that I say and like that um but like putting it into action is a completely different thing. Well, you can read all the good quotes you want, but you have to remind yourself um, if you find that quote powerful or whatever, that it should be acted upon, um, that you actually act upon it. And like it's mm-hmm. right sati, right? Okay. Well, you have probably heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the new word for shell-shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this... Um, generally, post-traumatic stress disorder was figured out and known for people coming back from the war, where they spent weeks or months in a very, very tough situation. Which means that in those weeks or months when the uh, soldier was in the field, he very quickly picked up some very, very big, huge habits. Mm-hmm. that are now known as the post-traumatic stress disorder, that he is stressed out for some unknown reasons. Okay. It's also possible for people to have one traumatic episode that happened in a short period of time, say a day or so. Yeah. And they still will have that post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it is actually possible for um, a child to be, um, let us say, molested, hurt, in danger. The guy got caught the first day that he caught uh, that he had the child, but that child is going to have effects from that one particular episode 
for years into the future mm -hmm. because they don't have any way of getting out of it. Well, guess what? That it works in the actual opposite direction of that, that people, in fact, on the spiritual journey can have some wake-ups, some intense situations that bring up enough, um, let us call it insight or enthusiasm or whatever it is, so that they make a kind of, um, not necessarily a vow, much more of a wow, and then they don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, this can happen, in fact, with, with young boys who are dealing with girls, 14, 15 year old boys having a conversation with a girl, and she says something and he gets put down and he feels so bad that he's not going to go back yeah, and word. do that anymore. Whatever yeah. it was that he did, he never again is he ever going to do that. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is the whole thing that not only is it positive, it can also be um, uh, negative, and this can be useful for us, but normally we have small insights that give us a little bit of energy, and then things are like uh, trickled in. So basically, um, sometimes events come like a fire hose and sometimes they come like a drip yeah yeah it makes sense okay because of the events of the time basically it is better to work with the drip than it is with the fire hose we don't need a fire hose going off from time to time in our lives yeah it's hard to drink out of a fire hose <laughs> yeah certainly <laughs> yes all right and so this is why we want to get in seclusion, because if we can get ourselves into seclusion, then we can re eliminate almost all of the real fire hoses so that we can then tend to start dealing with things one by one as they occur, one thing that comes up after another with the wholesome um, uh, view and, and wholesome right sati and um, effort. This over and over and over again of taking the unwholesome thoughts out and replacing them with wholesome thoughts um, is now the new, the new practice over and over and over again because we have been doing um, unwholesome thoughts over and over and over again and, and they get kind of ground in. And yeah, so most of the time, things don't operate with fire hose level. Most of the time, things are at the drip level. But if you put a bucket under a faucet that's dripping, you just wait and see that bucket fills right up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then it begins to overflow. There is an end to it. That's one of the things that people have a, a problem with in the sense that there's no end to the suffering. There's no end to these problems. Uh, and the answer to that is with the right skills, you can begin to see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. But this is something that uh, Sariputta uh, in, in that sutta that uh, I, I speak of, uh, one yeah. by one as they occur, when Sariputta could see that there is an end to this. Hmm. There, there is a time when that bucket will completely fill up. There is a time when the habit patterns of the mind change from the old unwholesome patterns one after another 
into if we keep applying wholesome thought after wholesome thought after wholesome thought after wholesome thought, they begin to happen more on their own. Yeah. It becomes um, a new habit. And when yeah. it becomes becomes a new habit, we still want to keep that sati going to make sure that they that these thoughts are always wholesome. Mm -hmm. But now the job is really a whole lot easier because the heart thoughts are are still wholesome. All we have to do is is see that, as opposed to taking the right effort to throw the un unwholesome thoughts out. Now we don't have to throw the unwholesome thoughts out anymore because they're just one wholesome thought after another after another, and so we can relax even more. It's a it's a newer state of relaxation. All right, so. Uh, in this situation of, of being able to see the danger in the gratification, that we uh, take gratification from whatever we do. We even call it sometimes, for instance, comfort food. Yeah. Or doing things that try to uh, that we do to make ourselves feel better. That is, in fact, unwholesome for us to do. Yeah, people call things therapeutic, right? Um, like, um, watching this movie is therapeutic for me, like saying it's, um, the word ther therapeutic as well. You say comfort food, but also like, um, where like it might distract us from those un unwholesome thoughts, but, um, it's not throwing them out. That's exactly correct. That in fact, this is what the mind needs. It needs to be distracted from its um, bad habits of, of thought. This is in fact the entire rationale behind um, the entertainment industry, starting from the fairs of the Middle Ages through the vaudeville of the 19th century into radio in the early 20th century into television and movies and all of that kind of stuff. And they actually talk about it as an escape. Yeah. An escape from what? Yeah. An, an escape from the dull, humdrum miseries of life. That people yeah. create for themselves, right? They're entertaining that like restlessness, right? Mm -hmm. They're actually entertaining that restlessness rather than working directly with the restlessness, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and they're looking for the gratification. In fact, um, the watching the movie in most cases is very similar to that monkey keep pounding that yeah, yeah uh, sure. button. Yeah. Just keep pounding that button, hoping that this movie is going to make me feel better. Yeah, I've noticed that. Like some things I'll do, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just going to turn this off. This isn't making me feel any better. Let me just go sit or whatever. Right. So when we recognize that we're looking for gratification mm -hmm. and when we don't see it and find danger instead, we tend to keep doing it over and over again, hoping that the gratification will come or that we have the gratification that's a mixed bag and we don't see that it's got costs that come with it. Mm -hmm. That one of the things that makes a big company successful in the ways that they look about being successful is because they're capable of doing a cost-benefit analysis in the sense that the purchases that they make and things like this 
uh, operate within the context of profitability or whatnot. We can use that same quality in the sense of doing our own cost-benefit analysis because the benefit then is the gratification we're doing from all of the various things that we do, but we don't actually look at and investigate the cost of how much this is going to actually cost us. That uh, this is something that the, um, uh, the car dealers are very, very skilled at is to keep the client focused on how wonderful and marvelous the car is and keep the person out of the mindset of how much trouble it's going to be to maintain this car and make the payments on it and all of that. And some people do. And then they'll walk out of the dealership knowing that, hey, the cost-benefit analysis is such that I'm not going to have quite the benefit of that car. It's going to cost too much. Yeah. <laughs> Where if um, the metric that the cost-benefit analysis for the companies were working at was happiness of their customers instead of profitability, they'd probably all shut down or a lot of them. That's right. In fact, you could go so far as to say that that cliche of the customer is always right has definite limits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely it has limits. So that's only the way that they greet them. But when it comes to really profitability, when the profitability of the company uh, is online, but let's get back to the whole point is, is that we can take that as something that at least that is something that the companies are doing correctly of making that cost benefit analysis. But then the very people who are working for that company. Doing the cost benefit analysis for that company will go home and live their lives. Without doing the cost benefit analysis yeah, on their certainly. own yeah. behavior. Okay. Same thing. In fact, the same thing is true with um, um, scientists who are well known, very deep into their science. They're really, really excellent on, on it. And uh, possibly the easiest joke would be that this guy is a, a highly skilled, a highly decorated, highly published paleontologist. Mm -hmm. Six days a week. And then he goes to church on Sunday to a church that believes in creationism. Yeah. Okay. How can you do that? No, I see a, a whole lot of that. I um I was um reading someone posting about sports. Um so they were in sports they were a professional athlete and they were really high in their craft. So he had a blog post that he was doing. Um and then so the first blog post was about how to be a winning player and like um, that cost benefit analysis. Um, but then like the next one, um, what didn't make sense to me is how he talked about um, the whole business of sports is built around selling products. Um, and like that feels like it kind of discounts that like. Um, like. So like if it is all built around selling products like that kind of would lead one to question, why am I having this winning mindset in general? Why am I putting myself through all this suffering to get that like beautiful gold medal um, when like this whole system, like if you look at it, like because he was a business person, like their whole business, he said you can tell the success of a sport by looking at the court and seeing how many things they're trying to sell to you like. 
um, it just struck me as like maybe like there was some reflection to be done on what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I, um, I have not been too much involved with the sports industry at all, but I certainly do understand what you're talking about. This is, in fact, part of the bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Only this one is so sophisticated that it's bait and then more bait and then a switch. And this is how yeah. that it works. The first bait is the sport. And once mm-hmm. you get the people hooked on the sport, now you sell the sports equipment. Yeah. Because they are that that uh, that sport. And so um, uh, so they buy the sports equipment to help them further identify with the sport team. Mm-hmm. And then the generations grow up and they just take that sport for granted. Like it is a thing like that there is some, you know, I don't know, purity of sport. Like this is some like pure, ever-changing thing. And then controversies arise when, um, um, like, for example, in college sports, like women's sports, they um, get less viewership. Um, so, and not to take a position on either side, but like, there are complaints from women in sport that like they're not getting this purity of sport that they were promised, right? That like the men mm-hmm. get better equipment. There's more money spent on them because um, mm-hmm. the college college athletes they kind of promised that to them, like that you're gonna have this experience and that they're not just this stream of revenue for the college. Well, let's look at for a moment all um, athletes, the kids in school. Um, are motivated to play the sports because they get a lot of accolades and and uh, uh, let us say good dates from the cheerleaders and cheerleaders become cheerleaders so that they can get good dates with the fight with the athletes and all of that kind of stuff. So the kids are given this kind of an advantage that the children, uh, the teenagers, they don't quite see it yet that this is all bait. Mm-hmm. And that when uh, one of them gets uh, through high school, through college, as a college athlete, then all he's thinking about is um, athlete, athlete, I, I get my benefits, everything is athlete. Then he gets into the professional sports. And that's when he finds the switch. You're not in professional sports because you're wonderful at sports. You're here to sell. Yeah, yeah. You're here to sell, that we finally got you. We've been training you all of these years to make you a star. Now that you're a star, you're a salesman. Mm -hmm. That applies to any industry, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That actually applies to every industry, all of the sports. That happens on every one of them. That's why you even have sneakers called Jordans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly so. And, you know, like actors in Hollywood, they're doing the same thing. Like they get their parents gratification by being an actor. And then, yeah, it's just so many like. Right, exactly. This is the whole thing. But in all cases, neither the sport itself nor uh, the college education nor going into the professionals and selling, none of those things actually gave the child originally and the young man that he's growing up 
the real gratification he was looking for all along. He was always missing out on something. But in mm -hmm. fact, because he was missing out on something, they were the ones who, because, because of the same behavior, there that athlete is, just like that monkey pounding on that switch, hoping to get some reward. And now, like the Nikes and everything, they talk about the grind and they I, I, idealize that pounding on the switch. Like he's, That's the grind, exactly. Yeah. The grind is pounding on that switch, hoping for a reward that we never get. And we don't mm -hmm. recognize that pounding on that switch is a grind. Yeah. It's Duca. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is where the Buddha says, wakey, wakey, let's wake up to this and begin to recognize that those those thoughts are hoping for a future benefit mm -hmm. is the issue when you can in fact have the reward that you seek right now yeah that's the whole point of it that's so strange is that um and that mentality that the um uh that the young sportsman had that we were talking about before that young sportsman will take that mentality of his, either when he's already a professional sportsman or when he's still in college and he'll go to a meditation hall or a meditation retreat, and he'll do that meditation retreat the same way he does the sport, yeah. pounding on that switch, hoping for a reward. Hard work, hard work, right? Yeah. Hard work. So. This is the reason why uh, we have to recognize that the Brahmins were wrong about the weight of action and that pen is also wrong. That the way that we think is the most important because the way we think is going to determine all of our behavior and all of our actions. We cannot think or speak, excuse me, we cannot act or speak without thinking it first sometimes and in fact in many cases we think about it and think about it and plan and and ruminate and uh weaponize and over and over and over again until we get enough stuff up and then we pull the trigger mm -hmm. this is how we normally do it and when i say pull the trigger that means finally we take the action yeah mm -hmm. uh one of the things that you can see that is with emails that a lot of people, almost everyone, sits down and writes that email four or five or six or 10 or 15 times before they ever hit the first keystroke. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? There it is, that grinding of the mind before we actually write the email. We cannot write that email without having that grinding going on. Mm -hmm. So when we recognize that grind as a grind, then we can begin to say, wait a minute, I don't have to have that grind anymore. At least yes. not right now. At least right, right now. At least right now, I cannot be so critical and grasping yeah. and wanting and pounding, trying to hope to get something that right now I can just relax mm -hmm. and have happy thoughts. So. This whole thing then about being able to see the cost, being able to see the danger. Once we see the dangers, then the gratification begins to lose its sparkle. Yeah. 
it begins to lose itself um, uh, when ah, clear example the uh, the fox and the grapes mm -hmm. in Aesop's fables. Once the fox figured out that he was not going to get the grapes, he stopped jumping and reaching and whatnot. He walks away saying, well, the grapes are probably uh, sour anyway. Okay. And the, and the fox uses the fact that the, the grapes must have been sour as justification for him quitting, trying to jump and reach them. But failure alone was really what caused him to not take the... Um, uh, the grapes, and so he quit. For and sure. so the uh, the um, the fox was being dishonest. Yeah, we could apply this to most of the analogies, like the dieter. He said the diet wasn't working, but he was just working off of like going in the night and like other people's perceptions, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So we need to begin to see then that almost all of the thoughts that we have are not very wholesome. Yeah. yeah. And that if we really make the intention that we're going to actually have wholesome thoughts, then we can actually sit down and start investigating what kind of wholesome thoughts could I give myself that are really super duper wholesome and I get a great bit uh, benefit out of, out of that, okay? Mm -hmm. And I've got a list that worked for me Many of them are uh, uh, lines out of songs, but I've got mm. a deep musical past. Others will find other things. Sometimes uh, the kind of language that we would use would be nothing but a sigh. That would be sufficient. Just the, the sound of a sigh, just <sighs> is very wholesome thought. <laughs> yeah. But other thoughts, wholesome thoughts would be like, um, as I breathe in, I breathe in joy. But in fact, um, that would be a really good meditation for, Christ, for Christians, uh, a guided meditation that as I breathe in, I breathe in God. And as I breathe out, I spread joy throughout the world. And as I breathe in God, okay, because a lot of Christians, they have a big whip to do about God. It means something really big for them, but they don't see it then as something that they can use in as wholesome to bring in this God, to bring mm -hmm. in the joy, that uh, the whole concept of the breathing and breath uh, throughout all of history uh, the ancients have have been mystified by uh, air and the breathing and the fact that we know that when someone dies is because they're not breathing anymore. That in fact, the last breath that someone always has is an out breath. They exhaust. We even talk about it exhausted. People, when they're really tired, they say they're exhausted. Yeah. Right? That means that we're out. We, we breathe out. We have nothing left inside. So... Um, this whole quality then of breathing, to put that with very wholesome kinds of language, mm -hmm. uh, as well as other things that, that fit. Uh, one very wholesome uh, phrase is actually some Japanese haiku. Uh, Bushu wrote it. Then it translates this, no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. 
I really, I actually repeated that one to myself. I really like that one. Right. The best part of it, and the grass grows by itself. <laughs> There's like a, yeah, a certain joy there. There's a great I, um, deal of joy. I saw it a while back a student posted, like, um, a student of yours posted something on Reddit um, with, like, relating to this as, like, to mantras and, like, just something that'll inspire joy. He talked about, like, that you used Coca-Cola at some point um, just because mm -hmm. it brought up joy, right? It's not really what it is exactly, but if it inspires joy. If it inspires joy. So experiment, find things for you. Little phrases, little memories. Um, uh, e even just the, the, the little phrase of think happy thoughts. Mm -hmm. That that can be taught to children. Just just have happy, happy thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, just have happy thoughts. For sure. What what a world difference this whole planet would be if everybody on this planet would just simply allow themselves to have happy thoughts. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, I agree there. <laughs> so then, um, so my original question was then like, there are thoughts that pop up where like. Um, they are thoughts of the future, but in a sense of like re renunciation related and like, um, and that's kind of like my original question, like if one is escaping the prison of life, what does one have to do so that prison guards don't go chasing after you or like, so like the th thought I was saying earlier, like how does one do that skillfully? Well, the first thing is, is that you're going to make best friends with the prison guards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I realize that one, yeah. But um, in, in the um, recognition that it's a metaphor, mm -hmm. generally the prison guards that we're thinking about are actually thoughts within our own mind. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree there too. <laughs> and... Um, this is actually part of the reason that we talk about giving permission that many students don't feel that they deserve yet to have the benefits, all the benefits of being alive, including all the benefits of the joy, the benefits of success. They still think that, oh, I am still a loser and I don't really deserve that much joy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's one of the prison guards is it that is. you don't deserve it. And the answer to this is, yes, you do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, who said that? Who, who said you don't right, deserve that, it? That, right, that's, that's not the true. That's you go, right? Yeah. And that I often will tell students, you have my permission to be joyful. Yeah. You should be able to give yourself permission to be joyful. Okay, another prison card would be uh, the guard of not having enough effort. And so um, we can think of it in the sense of being powerful or being potent. But this is, in fact, uh, right, right effort and right attitude work together very strongly. In the beginning, it's all effort, but it's not 
hard effort. It's not like struggle, but it is persistent. And to see coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. Yeah. But once we begin to see the benefit of that, once we begin to see that in our cost benefit analysis, that doing it this way, the cost goes down and the benefit goes up. Now we can see that now we're successful at this. Yeah, I've noticed that, that within myself. Yeah, we're like, and that, I'll, go ahead. That feeling then of success actually then adds to the, um, uh, you can call it enthusiasm, but that enthusiasm or that feeling of success actually makes the effort easier. Mm-hmm. Like the confidence okay. in the Dhamma, right? Or The confidence in the yeah. Dhamma, the confidence that I can clean out my mind, the confidence that I can come back and be in a really good state, that, that grows. That confidence grows and builds, and it, when it does, it makes the job all so much easier. That, in fact, you can see that um, two little kids, both of them were given an opportunity to swing the bat. And one kid just grabs that bat, and he walks out there, and I'm ready to go, okay? Mm-hmm. And the other kid, you have to coach him. Come on, get off the stand. Come on, here's the bat. Take the bat. You can do this. We have to kind of talk them into it, you see, because the child feels like that he can't do it. Mm-hmm. That's the original reason why it does take effort. It's because everybody starts out practicing Anapanasati with the loser's mentality. That's yeah. why it takes effort, yeah. <laughs> is they have to have a little bit of, of confidence. Uh, either confidence in their teacher or confidence in the uh, in the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha, taking refuge in that actually helps create that confidence that then makes the effort possible. Mm-hmm. But real success, actually, aha, I can make myself feel happy. I can throw those thoughts out. Now that's the real confidence that's going to make it much easier to do. Yeah. Success is a great motivator yeah so it's not about like the guidebook on like how to seduce the prison guard but like like with the baseball analogy it's more giving the students the success or confidence and then that's the easy part mm-hmm. and so that lack of confidence so that no power is one of the guards that can be made friends with we can make friends with that part of us that says, I know that you uh, think that you can do, can't do it, but really I have confidence that I can do this. I really can do this. Yeah. Okay. And so you can talk yourself into it literally mm-hmm. because we've been talking ourselves into failure our whole lives. Now it's time to talk ourselves into success. Yeah. And so the, that would be one of the prison guards. In fact, um, uh, there's also another kind of prison guard, and that prison guard is saying that if you go against nature, if you leave this prison, what's, what's going to become of you? Mm-hmm. If you really become a Dhamma dude, you're not going to fit in with anything anymore. Yeah, I've had to throw that one out, but like, yeah, I definitely have, but it, it's like, 
it's a quick one now because like the wisdom is there or like like what am i even looking for in that uh-huh so this is actually looking at it from the fact that it's not dangerous that in fact this gives us a new level of protection mm-hmm. that yes the world is dangerous but it's not going to be more dangerous because I change. It's going to be less dangerous because I change. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so our wisdom will say that even that. So basically what I've said, the prison guards then are protection, permission, and potency. Mm-hmm. For pr- protection, permission, and potency. So uh, the permission is the one that we've been talking about in the beginning the prison guard that says you're you're not ready for this or you don't deserve it or uh you haven't come far enough how dare you feel mm-hmm. good etc like that and the answer is it's okay that i feel like this it really is i give myself complete permission and so do all of my friends that it really is okay that i feel marvelous yeah and then there'll be a little thought in there. You're not supposed to be marvelous because you've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And there's charming children in Yemen and uh, the rainforest is being cut down. And how dare you feel so happy? And, and <laughs> That's okay. The grass grows by itself. <laughs> right? Exactly. And the answer is we do have permission. <laughs> and we do have that potency. We can do this. This is possible. We do have the confidence. Mm-hmm. And then the protection is there. That this is actually a wholesome in a really wholesome way, and it's not dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's seeing how things truly are is wholesome. That we yeah. cannot hide because we don't like the facts. We don't like the truth. We see danger in, in the truth. And so we have to recognize that no... The truth is not dangerous. It's when we don't see the truth. That's what's dangerous. Yeah. And so these are the three. Protection, permission, and potency are useful to recognize that, yes, you can do this. Yes, you do have permission. It's really okay for you to do it. And there's no side effects. There's no downside to this. There is no dukkha in Duca Naroda. That's kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) Or another way of saying it is there is a third noble truth. There is an end to all of this. Yeah. Yeah. The third noble truth actually exists. And it's worthwhile to spend some time investigating that in the sense of, yeah, right now I'm feeling fine. I don't have any suffering. I don't have any anxiety. I don't have any tensions. I don't have any fears. I don't have any worries. This present moment is marvelous. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's that third noble truth. Allow yourself to be really in a good state without the fact that there's danger here because there's no danger to that. Danger is wanting things to be better than they are now, but expecting, uh, let us say, experiencing the now is quite marvelous. Yeah. It has no disadvantage, no downside. No, it doesn't. 
Okay, so now we've talked about the, this in the sense of uh, the gratification. We take great gratification in all of the things that we do without recognizing that, they're, that they have dangers built in. Once we see the cost benefit is such that the benefit is not so big, these, this gratification, for an example of that is the pity party. When somebody is having a pity party, when they're really, really bad and depressed, they get some sort of satisfaction out of it. If nothing else, that it's a familiar place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they do. But it would be uh, the wake-up call would then say, uh, but look, look how bad you feel while you feel good having this pity party. Wouldn't be joyful, be easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and still it is hard for them to pop right out of it because there's so much into the habit of it. This is why we have to practice it over and over again is because we're reluctant to let go of the gratifications that we've had. Mm -hmm. The mixed bag, everything is a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. It's um, yeah, if you. Uh, I, I, I'll reference the analogy in my head sometimes like um, my dog trying to get food and like me feeding him food is just going to keep him feeding, right? You have to at some point not keep giving him food while you're eating. Um, and then he's going to stop begging for food. Um, or at least he'll that's, start barking that's first. what you want to do. In fact, <laughs> to be honest with you, I share my meals with the dogs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've gone back and forth. There are voices that tell me not to do that, but that makes the most sense to me too. That's, um, but the analogy more so like, there's that barking and um or whatever and to get that out of your mind you have to every time that barking comes up not like feed it uh i understand what you're talking about there right that's a different analogy than um than what i was thinking about yes mm -hmm. that barking is in fact that monkey pounding that switch yeah yeah that's that's and we do that and here we you're do. talking about barking and barking and barking and barking. And the answer to that is not to make it stop barking. No, but it's not. It's, yeah. no, but the answer is is to let it bark a happy song instead. Mm -hmm. And then those barks will become more skillful. There's no alligator on my forest. And then the barking say. will yeah. become much more skillful and it won't be loud and harsh anymore. It'll be a song. Mm -hmm not noise. So I understand what you mean by the uh, by the analogy of the barking dog. Exactly. Right. That the, what the bar what the barking dog needs is comfort. Mm -hmm. And so nurturing, this is what we need. Yeah, for and sure. So we begin to nurture that pounding thought in there. Never yeah, mind. Exactly. We're OK. I could be happy now. It's all right to be happy right now. You don't need whatever it is that you're pounding away trying to get. And then eventually that monkey will learn that, right? Um, and he will learn it. Yeah. He'll just sit and be happy too, unless there is something like. That, yeah. that bucket will eventually fill up, drop by drop, and it'll fill. Mm -hmm. It will fill up. 
that you know you've already started i mean you've already got your bottom covered with water already it's not going ping 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 anymore now it's going flop 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 <laughs> yeah so keep at it one whole right. thought after another after another so we'll finish now parker this has been a really good chat all right great yeah thank you i enjoyed this too all righty well, we'll see you soon see you soon